Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 379 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17. Lunar liftoff. Docking, and Orbital Science. Our last episode, we left Gene and Jack readying Challenger for departure from the surface of the moon as Ron Evans passed overhead in the command module America. It was December 14, 1972. As they prepared, Jack Smith had a surprise for Mission Control. Since it was the Christmas season, and in the tradition of Apollo 8, he prepared a poem for the occasion. Hey, Gordy, uh, in honor of one of your comm handovers last night, and in the tradition of Apollo 8, I've got the paraphrase of a familiar poem for you. Okay, go ahead. Well, it's a week before Christmas and all through the limb. Not a commander was turning, not even turning. The samples were stowed in their places with care in hopes that with you they soon will be there. And turning feet in his hammock and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long, lunar, short lunar nap. But out on the, out on, up on the commoop there rose such a scatter I sprang from my hammock to see what was the matter. Sun on the breast of the surface below is a luster of objects as if in snow. And what to my wondering eye should appear but a miniature rover and eight tiny reindeer and a little old driver so lively and quick I knew in a moment it must be St. Dick. I heard him explain as the over the hills he did speed. Merry Christmas to all and to all to you all Godspeed. Very good. Gordo, that's the first time I heard that, and I gotta I gotta say that was beautiful. I agree, uh did the LMP get any sleep, or did he spend all night composing that? 
Getting back to work, Houston gave Gene and Jack the computer numbers and they opened the valves and watched the pressure rise on the helium that would force fuel into the ascent engine. When the computer issued its command or Gene hit the ignition button, the fuel would flow together, instantly detonating and they would vault from the surface, head into orbit, link up with Ron Evans, and go home, assuming everything worked. But here on the moon, there was no Rocco Patron pad crew to assist them, no Gunther Vent to lock them in and make sure everything was ready, no Glenn Lunny to ramrod the liftoff, no second chance at all. Gene threw in a Hail Mary and a sign of the cross because he needed all the help he could get. Watches and clocks counted down in synchronized slow motion on two celestial bodies. All the valves were open except the final two. From Houston, Captain Video zoomed in with the rover camera to show the Challenger launch. At 4.56, Houston time, Gene rested the tip of his left index finger on the yellow ignition button. Now, the uninterrupted liftoff and journey to orbit of the Challenger. We will pick up the countdown at 2 minutes and 10 seconds. Read your lock, clear America. This is Challenger. We're coming up on 210 from liftoff. Good. Excellent. Good. 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 Good
Roger. You have good pride. Okay, 30 seconds. 308, your number. Take coming through 1,500 feet. And 8 dot looks good. Roger, uh, we've lost data right now. But, uh, well, we'd like half Omni, half Omni, please. Okay, coming up on... Uh, 40 seconds, Ed. We're going. Coming right over top of Camelot. And we're showing altitude of 2,700 feet. Awful lot of static, Jack. We break lock? Yep. Must you get it on an army or something? Yeah, I got it on the army. Roger, John Deere, you're loud and clear. And both systems okay. are right on the line. Should be about 145 and minus 47. Altitude 5,500 feet. Get calm. I will. Both guidance systems agree. We're nearing 8,000 feet altitude. And the ascent engine performing very well. Put 30 Houston. We're in the blind and we're go. Roger. We'd like the eggs to auto. Okay, I got good flight. No. Trying to hold. Hey, Houston, coming up on two minutes. Challenger, Challenger Houston, your go at two minutes. We'd like to take over control auto. Over. Okay, you watch the table, Gino. I'm watching it. Just get calm as you can. Challenger Houston, how do you copy Houston? Okay, Houston Challenger is go, coming up by 2.30, we're through 19K. Roger, Challenger, we need a 6.23 plus 10,000 in the eggs, over. Well, those are the angles. How about an Omni? I tried it, I've got the... Houston, ask Omni, please. Would you relay, America? Okay, Houston, three minutes. The challenger is over through 25K. Uh, I tried it. I tried it around and it doesn't hold. Try ask Omni again. America, Houston, tell uh, Challenger that they're right on the money on trajectory. Both systems are go. Okay, Houston in the blind challenges go coming up on 325 and 30k. Okay, there's that. How do you read, Houston? America, would you relay uh, to Challenger to go aft on me? Okay, Houston, three minutes. The challengers go. We're through 25k. America, Houston, tell uh, Challenger oh, that they're right on the money on trajectory. Both systems are go, Omen. Okay, Houston, in the blind, Challenger, go coming up on 325 and 30K. Okay, there's that. How do you read, Houston? America, would you relay uh, to Challenger to go aft, Omni? We 
Okay, America, tell Jonathan we're reading the fly-by. Okay, we're reading you, Houston. Okay, uh, Jack, we need a 623 plus 10,000. Jack, give us a 623 plus 10,000. Okay, four minutes, Challenger, go over to 37K. Roger, Challenger, you're looking good here. Hey, that's it. We're about three minutes from shutdown now. Got about a 716 burn, Jack. Altitude approaching 40,000. Yeah, about uh, 282 coming through 41K. Okay, 430, 282 is great, 41K is great. 73 is good, Ags and things are right together. Okay, Houston, uh, Challengers go. We're now through 43.5. Challenger, Houston, we'd like to terminate ascent feed now. Okay, main call going on. And uh, the reason is ascent the mixture ratio closed. problem. That's just to be uh, conservative and safe, over. Understand that we're going five and we're now out of 48K. Okay, the camera stopped. Okay, burn time's going to be about 18 or 19, 718 or 719, Jack. Okay. About a minute and a half to go. We look good. Altitude 50,000 feet. Big are looking good. A little bit north. Okay, yeah, Houston, uh, 540 Challenger's coming through 52K, and Pink says 126 on the eight shot. We're go. Act like the plane. Roger, Challenger, your trajectory is right on the money. Both systems are go. Good, uh, good shutoff card now. Okay, okay, it'll be 20. 720 on the shutoff. Okay, we're already terminated at and feed. You've got 1300 to go. Okay, let's double check everything now. You got that, you want to uh, move the engine arm off with 200 to go. Bags and things are right together. Lunar module now nearing orbital velocity, about 4,500 feet per second. On uh, 57K. Roger, we agree with the... I'm going to it out nicely. Okay, H-dot's rounding right out to the target. 700 to go. Okay, normal shutdown and normal okay. trim procedures. Roger, normal shutdown, normal trim. Give me hack at 200, Jack. Okay, it's 500 now, mark it, and the ascent feeds are already terminated. Okay, very good. Lem velocity now nearly a mile a second. Passing 59K, 300, stand by. Coming up on shutdown. 100 to go. Mark it. Okay. Engine arm is off. Okay. Stand by for shutdown. 80. 50. Shutdown. Okay. Auto shutdown. Auto shutdown. Roger. The ascent burn lasted about 7 minutes and 18 seconds, and it put the Challenger crew into an elliptical orbit with a low point of 9 nautical miles above the moon, and a high point of 50. It was a nearly 
perfect burn. At 12 minutes 12 seconds after launch, Gene did a series of reaction control system firings called tweak burns to fine-tune the orbit. Compared with their 5,500 foot-per-second orbital speed, the velocity change that Gene wanted, 4 feet per second aft, 1 foot per second out the Z-axis, or the windows, and 9 feet per second left toward Gene's side of the spacecraft, was trivial in the extreme. However, they wouldn't rendezvous with Ron for another hour and a half, not until they'd gone around the back side of the moon and were in radio contact with Earth again. And a net change of 10 feet per second meant the difference between a perfect rendezvous and a miss of several kilometers. It was better to do the tweet now with a small engine burn rather than later with a bigger one. Because the required velocity change was so small, Gene actually did three separate reaction control system firings, one for each of the three spacecraft axes. With Jack watching the abort guidance computer, Gene fired the thrusters associated with the X-axis, which ran up through the ascent engine bell to the overhead hatch, until the abort guidance system computer told them that they had made the desired one foot per second velocity change. Then he did the Z-axis change. The Z-axis runs from the rear of the cabin forward toward the hatch, and finally the Y-axis left to right change. By the time they were done, they were 125 miles behind and below the command and service module. The lunar module crew was flying in an orientation such that when they got close enough, they would have a clear view of their sister ship about 18 minutes after the launch. Gene got his first visual sighting of the command and service module He and Jack had just passed through the Sunrise Terminator into darkness, and although Ron was still out in front of them, he was high enough that he was still in sunlight. Moments later, Ron also passed into darkness, and once his eyes adjusted to the lower levels of light, he spotted the tracking light on the Challenger. The two spacecraft were now about 112 miles apart, Engines quiet and following paths which, through the magic of orbital mechanics, would soon bring them together. Fifty minutes after launch, Challenger and America disappeared behind the moon, and by the time they reappeared, 45 minutes later, they were only 0.8 miles apart and were closing at a stately 30 feet per second. Gene and Jack had their backs to the moon and were looking almost straight up at Ron in the command service module. Ron, too, had a good view. His TV camera was mounted in one of the command and service module windows so that Houston and the rest of the world could watch Challenger as it seemingly rose up from the lunar surface. Gradually, Gene slowed his approach and at a separation of only 100 feet, he stopped. 
Then Ron did a slow rotation of the command service module so that the lunar module crews could do a visual examination of the ship that would take them all home. As the two ships passed over the landing site for the first time since liftoff, Gene and Ron maneuvered into docking attitude, and then, ever so slowly, Gene inched closer. There was no need to hurry. They were going to spend the next two days in lunar orbit, gathering more data and adding to the wealth of visual observations that Ron had already provided. Fifteen minutes after they started to maneuver, the two spacecraft were docked, and in a few minutes more, they were sure that all the latches were secure. They had a hard dock and could open the hatches, clear the connecting tunnel, and begin to transfer the precious lunar samples. Here's how Ron Evans remembered it. And uh, after three and a half days, uh, we got ready to re-rendezvous uh, with these guys who had been down uh, on the moon. And of course, I was, as I mentioned, all by myself. So they get in the top half of their, their lunar module, and they use the bottom half as a kind of a launch platform. Light, they light the engine, and then this funny-looking crazy thing uh, lifts off of the moon, and they chase me around uh, for about four hours or so, and then we finally get caught up together, and I look out, and, and here is this funny-looking thing. You know, they got the little triangular windows that uh, look like eyes sticking out there, and then there's a hatch down in the front of it that looks kind of, you know, kind of like a mouth. And, and uh, we get up close together, and then they, uh, we get ready, and they flip it over, and then I go ahead and, and thrust on in with my uh, thrusters, and we come on in, we got docked together. And shortly after, we got docked with this crazy-looking vehicle or whatever it was, I heard. <laughs> and I said, who's there? <laughs> Uh, they convinced me who it was. And uh, <laughs> so I opened the hatch. I opened the hatch. And, and when I opened the hatch, you know, those guys had been down there walling around in that very, very fine lunar dust. And, and when they opened the hatch, this dust just kind of flowed or filtered, infiltrated my nice, clean spacecraft. You know, all those rocks and everything else came across there. And man, were they dirty. But uh, <laughs> we, we got all, all squared away. And uh, we stayed around the moon then for uh, another day doing geological uh, observations and uh, a few other things. Minutes after the two spacecraft were hard docked, Capcom Gordon Fullerton read a statement to the crew from the Nixon White House. It said, quote, As the Challenger leaves the surface of the moon, we are conscious not of what we leave behind, but of what lies before us. The dreams that draw humanity forward seem always to be redeemed. If we believe in them strongly enough and pursue them with diligence and courage. Once we stood mystified by the stars, today we reach up to them. We do this not only because it is man's destiny to dream the impossible and to do the impossible, but also because in space, as on earth, there are new answers and new opportunities for the improvement of and the enlargement of human existence. This may be the last time in this century that men will walk on the moon. 
but space exploration will continue. The benefits of space exploration will continue, and there will be new dreams to pursue, based upon what we have learned. So let us not mistake the significance or miss the majesty of what we have witnessed. Few events have ever marked so clearly the passage of history from one epoch to another. If we understand this about the last flight of Apollo, then truly we shall have touched a many-splendored thing. To Gene Cernan, Jack Smith, and Ron Evans, we say, Godspeed you safely back to this good earth. End quote. Gene made a gracious statement of thanks, and then Jack and Ron added brief thanks of their own. But inside, Jack was upset. Apollo was ending, but there were still 27 years left in the century, and he hated the thought of an American president telling a whole generation that they would have no chance to do their own lunar exploration, but there was nothing Jack could do but suppress his anger, and in the meantime, there was some more exploration that he and the others could do before they headed home. Once the hatches were open and the tunnel was cleared, Ron passed over the vacuum cleaner and Gene and Jack got busy with the worst of the dust. Loss of signal came about 45 minutes after the docking, and by the time Apollo 17 reemerged, three quarters of an hour later, Gene and Jack were handing sample containers over to Ron. With his own interest in mind, Ron also made sure that they had all the helmets and gloves and other gear that they would need for his EVA. Once they had left lunar orbit and were on their way home, Ron was going to go outside, secured with a tether to retrieve film canisters from the scientific instrument module bay. The EVA promised to be the highlight of the mission for Ron, and he didn't want to lose out on his chance by leaving a helmet or a glove behind in the lunar module. By now, Challenger had almost completed its mission. The rocks and the helmets and gloves were all safely aboard America, and indeed, the command module was so full of rocks and astronauts that the only way they were going to get a little elbow room was to get rid of the jettison bag that Ron had been filling for the last three days. Consequently, just before they closed the lunar module hatch for the last time, the astronauts tossed the bulging jettison bag into the now-empty cabin of the lunar module. Challenger had one last mission to accomplish. She was headed back to the moon for a planned impact on the eastern flank of the South Massive, and as Challenger made her last trip down to the lunar surface, she also had the unglamorous but necessary job of carrying the trash. Because of the precision that was hoped for Challenger's impact, the jettison operation was carefully choreographed. The crew got their suits on and did a pressure check. Then they pressurized the connecting tunnel. And at about 194 hours into the mission, 
released the latches so that the pressure in the tunnel could gently push the two spacecraft apart. For another half hour, the flight controllers made sure that they could control the lunar module's attitude. And then, at the proper moment, at 1.95 hours and 38 minutes into the mission, they did a long fire of the lunar module's RCS thrusters. At launch from Earth, the lunar module was carrying 630 pounds of RCS propellant. And because things had gone so smoothly throughout the flight, there were still 450 pounds left when the lunar module was released for its final descent. During the long 1 minute 56 second burn, another 270 pounds of propellant was expended, enough to trim 213 feet per second off the orbital speed of the 5,277-pound ascent stage and send it toward an impact with the South Massive. Down on the lunar surface, the TV camera on the rover was still in good working order, and as the moment of impact approached, Ed Findle pointed it at the planned impact point high on the eastern slope. But there was a question. Because there was only a limited amount of tracking data that could be acquired in the 17 minutes between the end of the deorbit burn and the impact, predictions of the impact point were uncertain by about 10 to 15 kilometers. Fendel could look at most of the era ellipse if he pulled back on his zoom, but with a wide field, he would have limited resolution, which would lower his chances of seeing anything. For several minutes, he played with the zoom and adjusted his pointing. However, in the end, he went to maximum zoom and aimed at the planned point and hoped for the best. Given the relatively poor resolution of the camera, even at maximum zoom, there wasn't much chance of success. And even though the lunar module did hit the mountain within a mile of the planned spot, Nothing was seen by the eager audience in Houston. The seismometers that Jack had deployed at the ALSEP site recorded the impact, but there was nothing to be seen on the TV. The orbiting Apollo 17 crew had a bit better luck. Three minutes after the impact, Ron had the South Massive in view. Hey Houston, I can see a bright spot on the South Massive, on top of the South Massive. Down in Houston, Bob had been listening to another conversation and asked Ron to repeat what he'd said. Okay, this is America. I can see a bright spot on the top of the South Massive. And let me see. I guess if you come from the east, it's the second ridge from the east and right on top of the ridge is a bright spot. I don't know how big a crater it should make. Moments later, Ron dug out a suitable map, landing site 204 in a book of photo maps he had been using for visual observations, and he described the location in more detail for Bob. He said there was now a bright spot on the top of the massive that he hadn't noticed before in any of the observations going by there. So, Challenger completed its final mission 
admirably. With Challenger's mission complete, Gene and Jack got down to the serious business of getting cleaned up, and that did take some time. At the end of the next Far Side Pass, it was Gene who answered Houston's call with a cheery, This is your friendly commander, clean and happier. Of course, Gene wasn't really clean, more like cleaner. As he recalled in his commentary, Gene even had lunar dust that worked its way under his fingernails, and it was a long time until the growth of his nails pushed all that out. Once they were somewhat clean, Gene and Jack were ready to join Ron in some sightseeing, and there was plenty to see. As they passed over the landing site for the first time since the lunar module impact, Ron took a series of pictures, and then a short while later, Jack reported that in passing over the Apollo 15 landing site at Hadley Apennines, they noticed that there was the same slightly or distinctly brighter area as there was at Taurus Latrobe. Then, in thinking about what he had seen at the surface, Jack added that, quote, As we walked along the surface, and this was true at Hadley's also, you stirred up a darker zone, albedo-wise. When you look at it from orbit, the area around where the lunar module landed was a distinct bright spot on the surface of a fairly uniform gray albedo plane, and both sites look just alike, end quote. The crew was in a light-hearted mood. They were back in orbit, and it had all gone beautifully. Gene and Jack got a little bad news when Capcom informed them that they had to start collecting their urine from now on. This was because experiments were still in progress, and an ill-timed urine dump would play havoc with the UV camera and the other gear. After three days in a gravity field, Gene and Jack were going to have to readapt to the intricacies of zero-G hygiene. On their final full day in lunar orbit, the crew of Apollo 17 was going to spend most of their time doing out-the-window geology. During the day, Jack, the professional geologist, and Ron, the seasoned lunar observer, did most of the talking. Because of the discovery of orange soil at Shorty Crater at the landing site, they spent a lot of time looking for color at various places where they and the geologist in the back room thought they might find other pyroclastic deposits. As they passed over the landing site, Ron noted that the orange coloration at Shorty was no longer visible. But a bit further west, in the Sulpicius Gallus area, in southwestern Mare Serenitatis, both he and Jack described numerous features that not only showed prominent orange, but also reds and reddish browns. Eventually, Jack saw enough that he was ready to offer an explanation of the colored layers. He said, Gordy, 
My impression from Shorty the other day and also from seeing these craters that seem to have orange around them and that look very much like impact craters from orbit, it may be that, if that is an alteration phenomenon. That is being localized around the structure created by the impact. But in this latter case, it looks as if the impact itself penetrated into a zone of color. And a few minutes later, in describing a feature that Ron had just pointed out to him, Jack added, There's a gouge just south of the Sulpicius Gallus Ridge. The gouge is a rimless depression and streaming down from the upper proportion of that depression are not only our old friends, the orange grays, but some that would be a red-brown gray. Very, very clear coloration in this light. My goodness, there's another crater we'll have to look at. Yes, said Ron. There's a whole bunch of them down there. Yes, but that's something in the wall of it in that area. Yes, it's startling, man. We're seeing an orange moon now. This whole dark mantle in here around Sulpicius, Gallus, they are scattered craters with a variety of orange to red-brown hues and they all, except for that large rimless depression, which looked as if it was exposing some layers which were streaming that colored debris down its walls. All of the other craters seem to be small impacts that apparently are penetrating just far enough into the dark mantle material to tap this zone of orange to red-brown material. And just north of that elongation depression, Ron added, there is another circular crater, and it also is penetrating down through this mantle stuff. And it had the reds and the browns and the oranges dipping down into it. For most of the day, the astronauts described what they were seeing out the window. The large Mare Field Farside Crater, Tsiolkovsky, was one of particular interest, and so too was Mare Simthi, near the eastern rim. Jack, of course, tended to talk in terms of comparison between various features he was seeing, at one point providing a lengthy discussion of the so-called Wrinkle Ridge system, which bound the various Mare. Jack was truly in a geologist's paradise, and at one point, Fullerton jokingly told the crew that a requested change in the comm configuration was being done so that the secretaries that are transcribing the air to ground can catch up with Jack. Banter between the crew and the Capcoms was an important part of the mission, it was the voice of a friend, a comrade in arms, who had an office down the hall and who had been through training with you. It was certainly not a faceless voice a quarter of a million miles away. While the crew was doing geology and bantering with the Capcoms, the science teams back in Houston were busy with their own work. 
At one point in the proceedings, Fullerton read up a science summary for the crew. While Gene and Jack were on the surface, NASA had attempted to launch a small Aerobee rocket from the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. The rocket was carrying a UV spectrometer designed to obtain a solar spectrum that could be used to calibrate the data being acquired from the command module. That first launch had failed, but as Fullerton reported to the crew, a second attempt was successful. He also reported that the infrared radiometer back in the SIM bay was getting excellent data and mentioned that during CSM Orbit 33, when Gene and Jack were back in the lunar module cabin after EVA-2, the crater Kepler-C showed up as a 132-degree Kelvin hotspot superimposed on a 94-degree background. After 11.6 days of lunar night, the implication was that the ejecta blanket was retaining heat better than the surrounding surface. Down on the surface at Taurus Latreau, the heat flow probes were nearly equilibrated, and the principal investigator was confident that they were going to get a good measurement. The lunar surface gravimeter, an experiment designed to detect gravity waves and a source of considerable frustration to everyone involved, still wasn't working. The seismic profiling experiment was returning good data, having seen both the lunar module ascent and the impact on the south massive. Transit times of signals across the array were indicating propagation velocities in the regolith very close to those of the Apollo 16 site, and analysis of the lunar module impact signals indicated that the impact had occurred close to the target point. Fulton reported that the first of the seismic charges had been fired and, in addition, that an analysis of the temperature history of the SEP recorder suggested that some good data was obtained. Capcom Fullerton told the crew that the Traverse Gravimeter, an elegantly designed experiment that gave a high return for a small investment of crew time, had proved to be a spectacular success. Among other things, a preliminary analysis of the gravity readings obtained during the traverses indicated that the valley fill material was considerably denser than the massive material, and indeed the measurements were consistent with a thickness of 3 to 4 kilometers of dense basaltic rock. The crew was quite happy for the news. As Gene said, it's satisfying to have put in that much time and come out with some meaningful results. That makes us feel good. And, of course, not only did they have the satisfaction that most of the surface experiments were living up to expectations, but there was also the considerable contribution they were making from orbit. In all, the crew of Apollo 17 put in a full eight-hour day of visual observations, and probably with a good deal more that was done without reporting to Houston. Because they were following pretty much the same ground track on every pass, they had a chance to think about what they were seeing, making hypotheses, and then, on the next pass, see if the hypothesis made sense. 
Repeated passes over the landing site gave them a chance to see the gradual fading of the orange coloration around Shorty Crater, presumably an effect of the changing lighting conditions, and to compare what they were seeing at Shorty with related features in the Sulpicius Gallus region. From time to time, too, Houston could test its own hypotheses and have the crew examine specific features. As an example, there were some small craters west of the landing site which bore some resemblance to Shorty, but which on close examination did not appear to be remarkable. Clearly, while it was possible to do good geology from photographs, particularly high-resolution photographs of the sort taken by the Lunar Orbiter spacecraft in 1966, There was no substitute for a well-trained pair of eyes. Like the other J missions, Command Module Pilot Ron did some first-rate out-the-window geology. However, even to a casual reader of the orbital geology transcripts, Jack Smith's background and his freshly minted experience on the surface raised the art to a new level. If, as Gene and Jack mentioned in their mission commentary, NASA management was less than enthusiastic about having them spend an extra day in lunar orbit, it was a risk that, once taken, paid off handsomely. But eventually, the day had to end. For the last couple of hours before starting their rest period, the crew was pretty busy getting themselves and America ready for their last sleep period in lunar orbit. Just before loss of signal on Revolution 67, Houston said goodnight, and indeed Bob, who had taken over from Fullerton at the Capcom console, told the crew that while they were sleeping, the Orange team would be sitting around the fireplace here and they'd all be singing Christmas carols. It was December 16th, and it was time to go home. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 379 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 17, Lunar Liftoff, Docking, and Orbital Science. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode will be posted in three weeks. Hopefully, that is three weeks. That is because I'm going to take a little vacation. I will be leaving the old North State to go down to the beach. (laughs) So, I'm taking a brief vacation there. So, it'll be three weeks. So, the next episode should appear by January 13th. And then we will continue on our fortnightly schedule from there. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 202 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. 
And by the way, it is now the best time of year to perform the emoji maneuver. If you make a donation before the end of the year and make a donation in January, you can quickly advance to longevity emojis. And if you don't have any emojis now, you can quickly advance to the rocket emoji. So, at this unique time, and this is the final time of the year, it is a quick way to get an emoji or advance your emojis quickly. Had a few afterthoughts, of course. Remember our Christmas donor bonus. If you have given $50 or more during 2021 and have not received one already, I would like to send you a SRH logo magnet or a couple of SRH stickers. Just email me with your return address and choice of prize at spacerockethistory at gmail.com. All requests must be made by December 31st, 2021. That is the end of this year. Sorry if you heard strange noises or music playing during the podcast. We are under construction here, and some of these contractors really enjoy their music played loudly. I had planned to finish Apollo 17 this week, but I decided once I got into it, I wanted to cover some of the events that went on during the two days of lunar orbit after Gene and Jack came back from the surface. Since really I hadn't covered that part of the mission well in the past, this was the last chance I had to do it, so I went ahead and did it now. So I should finish up Apollo 17 next time. What did you think about President Nixon's message to the astronauts after they returned from the surface? I particularly did not did not enjoy this part. Quote, This may be the last time in this century that men walk on the moon. But space exploration will continue. The benefits of space exploration will continue, and there will be new dreams to pursue, based upon what we have learned. There's a lot of politicians speak in that. As mentioned, there were... 27 years left in the 20th century. So Nixon was talking to my generation. I was 12 at the time of that statement. Nixon was essentially telling the kids my age, we aren't going to the moon. I would like to take the opportunity to thank every politician who was involved in that decision. NASA is always at the mercy of the whims of the politicians. Okay, let's lighten things up just a little bit. It has been traditional at this time of year to play a certain clip from Apollo 8 that was made on December 24th. 1968. As you may recall, or if you've listened to the podcast, you know, 1968 was a very difficult time for this country. The people were in great turmoil and division. 
the flight of Apollo 8 seemed to be the one good thing that most of the people could come together for in 1968. It saved the year. Now here we are in 2021. I'm sure you can see the parallels to 1968. To make things worse, most people were expecting a better year in 2021 than in 2020. And somehow, things just got worse. I'm here to tell you not to give up. I don't know when, but I believe things will eventually get better. Now, for just a moment, let's go back to that magic time back in 1968 when the astronauts of Apollo 8 first orbited the moon. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. They was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called these seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Okay, that was very memorable for me. For those interested in the farm progress, Remember from last time, the plumbers were looking for a leak in the plumbing coming out of the shower. Well, they found it. By use of a camera, they threaded through the pipe. They found a leak under the cement in the basement. It seems during installation, the contractor who poured the basement floor, poured the concrete in the basement floor, damaged the plumbing drainage pipe which with one of his uh, machines instead of reporting this he decided to fix the plumbing himself hopefully now he realizes he needs to leave plumbing work to the plumbers the floor contractor had to cut a trench in the basement floor so the plumbers could replace the busted pipe 
which they did, and the pressure test worked now. So the plumbing's complete. But there is still a 12-foot-long trench in my basement floor that will have to be patched. So that's two big mistakes from the uh, basement person who did the flooring, the poured cement. Also, from last time, I told you that the gas fireplace was installed. Um, Upon closer inspection, we discovered that the installers broke the ceramic that goes beside and behind the gas logs. So, that will have to be fixed during the final installation. Mrs. SRH found that a faux beam, that is a faux beam, a beam that is faux, (laughs) a beam that is not real but is decorative, that the carpenters were supposed to put in, they left out (laughs) in the living room. So they had to come back and fix that. The rough-end wiring was completed. Of course, this contractor chose to ignore the drawings completely and place everything where he wanted to. He placed the power panel in the basement instead of the garage where it was supposed to be. They also couldn't figure out how to connect the internet cables, even though they were on the drawings as well, where we wanted them and we called out the connectors to use, And we called out the wiring to use. Instead, the contractor argued with us for an hour that we needed voice over IP, not internet cables, because he had been doing it that way for 30 years. So obviously he knows what we want. Eventually, he put in the cables and put them at the correct place this time. He had to move them. And it took less time to do that than to argue about it. Of course, since we depend on the Internet for a partial living, we wanted hardwired Internet cables instead of going wireless, especially for our laptops and for our TVs, too. And uh, the installer, he just could not understand why we didn't want voice over IP. I guess maybe he hasn't bought a cell phone before, because that's what we use for our telephone, is a cell phone. Anyway, the exterior walls and floors were insulated. We were quite pleased about that. Our sheetrock was delivered. However, the delivery people got the bright idea of removing a window so they could bring in the sheetrock easier. Unfortunately, they broke the window they removed, and it will have to be fixed. Once they did this, Mrs. SRH and I carefully inspected the other windows in the house and found that the bottom window sill was actually missing on three other windows. 
I guess they will have to be fixed too. But the good news is the sheetrock is being installed as I record this. I'm not sure what they're going to do below those windows with the sheetrock because there is no bottom window sill on three windows. And of course one window is broken. <laughs> so, we did get a little bit of work done this past week, but it seems like it's two steps forward, one step back when all the repairs, I just, I don't know. <laughs> you, you just got to keep your head up, I guess. We're, we're, we've got to be nearing completion, right? <laughs> it's been awfully cold in the camper over the past week, too. But there's a warming trend toward Christmas. That's great because everybody wants a nice warm Christmas. <laughs> Over the last fortnight, we had several contributions and some increases on Patreon. I would like to thank Chris B. from Missouri, who donated at the Orion level. Oliver T. from Germany donated at the Orion level. James M. from Illinois sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Ryan M. from Michigan donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Ben M. donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Enrique I. donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Pete C. donated at the Soyuz level. James C. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Lars B. from Denmark donated at the Mercury level. Owen Whitley donated at the Mercury level. Owen is one of my youngest listeners at six years old, and I certainly do want to encourage him to keep listening and to follow his dreams, perhaps, into space. Craig H. from Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned a galaxy emoji. Brett M. donated at the Vostok level. Peter C. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Andrew R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mir ISS level. Chris B. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Chris A. from Canada pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. And Mike H. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreons have reached 249. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 429, which I am very pleased to say is more than the 425 that I had lowered the goal down from 500. Now, last year, we had a total of 443 donors. Since we've reached the 425, there are, uh, and we've all, we're up to 429 now. I believe I would like to set a goal of reaching what we did last year, 443 donors, the same as last year. That would be just wonderful if we could do that. So I'm setting the goal, the final goal for this year, at 443. So if you're enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage and can, and can afford it. Let me preface that and you can't afford to, please go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. 
Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. The winner of this episode will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or the SRH Archive Magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Alan Nelson. Alan Nelson, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. You know, a lot has changed for us over the year, and we would like to thank you very much for both your moral and financial support. From our family to yours, we wish you a Merry Christmas with peace, love, and joy in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, the Apollo 17 Surface Journal, the Apollo 17 Timeline, the Internet Archive, Taps, Bugler, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 380 posted by January 13th, 2022. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.